Let's take our Bibles, turn to the first of three passages we're going to very briefly study this morning, Psalm 95. Psalm 95. We had a great study last week, didn't we? What a blessing it was to be taught the Word. And uh, my father, uh, such a joy to hear him preach again. I got so spoiled because I grew up listening to him every week, twice on Sunday. And uh, boy, I was, I was so blessed by that. But we studied last week four ways that we need to spring up as believers. And some of you weren't able to be here. And I uh, want to just real briefly uh, remind you of all four because they're going to be the context for our study this morning. The first one, I don't know if you remember them all. Hopefully you do. If you do, say them as we go. We saw the need, first of all, to do what? To wake up. That's right. To wake up, to break out of any settling, any spiritual drain, any apathy that's going on and to be alert and focused about our walk. And the second thing we saw was to build ourselves up in the faith, to take full responsibility for our growth and our maturation as believers. And, and one phrase he said last week that I loved is to say goodbye to a lack of discipline, to, to move on to maturity now, to get past those sins and those lack of disciplines of the youth of our faith and to move on to where we need to be. Third, we were told to lift up our eyes to the harvest. And I thought that was a great uh, word for us as a church as we have moved downtown and especially as we enter uh, Vacation Bible School this week, that the time is now, that that this is not the time to say, all right, we're in our building and we finally settled in after two and a half years and and now we can just kind of relax. And it's summer, so that compounds it. No, the time is now. We have an opportunity now to reach our culture for Christ and to influence people. And I thought it was a great point that that the word uh, field is wherever we live, wherever we work, whatever we're doing, that's our field. So we have a collective opportunity this week to influence kids and administer to them. And now we have to set our sights on what has God called us to do as part of this community, as part of this center city of Racine, uh, to reach people for Christ. And then finally, we were reminded to look up to look up because his return could come at any time. And as we look at the events that are surrounding us and the events of culture, uh, it just demands a complete readiness uh, to see the Lord. That was an excellent practical study. And I'm humbled to have to follow it this morning. So as I was seeking the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I was praying about starting a series this morning. uh, He quickly put this topic into my heart and mind. And when Julie said last night, what are you preaching about? And I told her, she laughed and said, you're funny. And I said, no, this is just what the Lord uh, asked me to do. So last week we focused on the word up. Today we're going to focus on the word, can you guess it? Down, that's right. Now the Bible uses the word down 1,071 times. And we're going to look at every single one this morning. Actually, no, we're not. It was a challenge. I had 1,000 verses to look at and to try to narrow it down. Uh, to a few concepts, but as I organized them, my heart was very impressed by three primary directives uh, that were given as the Lord. And, you know, sometimes I think we look at the word down and and it's kind of uh, associated with negativity. Up is like happy and great, everything's going up, the stock market's up and the economy's up, not really, but let's just say it for the sake of argument, that would make us happy. But we associate the word down with kind of, and that's not too good, and that's negative. But I want to assure you this morning 
that these three directives that were given by the Lord are just as positive and just as important to our spiritual walk as the four that we saw last week. I think this will really be a helpful study to us and it will remind us of the very serious calling that we have to walk worthy of the Lord. So let's start in chapter 95 of Psalms. Thank you for turning in your Bibles each week and for bringing them and taking notes and being students of the Word. Let's start in verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. Now this psalm, if you go back and look at verses 1 to 5, starts in a very upbeat note. And the psalmist is calling the people of God to praise the Lord joyfully, to praise the Lord openly, to be uh, very exertive in terms of our, our honoring of the Lord and to exalt His name. Because He alone is God. And He has created all things and He owns all things. And verses 4 and 5 are, are some of my favorites. I, I think they're very beautiful in their description of God's hand holding the depths of the sea and the peaks of the mountains and how he formed the land. I remember flying once from Charlotte to Chicago and we flew over the Blue Ridge Mountains and I don't know what it was about that day uh, that, that would just so impress my heart as I was looking out the window. I usually sit aisle, so it was rare that I was at the window. But I was looking out the window and we flew over the Blue Ridge Mountains and, and I could just literally see with my hand like like you're in the sand down at the beach and you start to shape it and form it i could i could see the hand of god how he had formed those mountains how he had put little little crags in the rock how he had taken and drawn a line in between the mountains how he had pressed down the land into the valleys i mean it was so real to me and so obvious that god in his almighty power with his almighty hand had shaped that land. And he had just pulled it and stretched it and formed it and pushed it together to make those mountains. Now, that's what David, or whatever the psalmist is here, is saying in verses 4 and 5. How God has formed the land, how he holds and formed those peaks of the mountains. If you've ever been in Switzerland or Austria, you've seen the majesty of the Alps, just how grand they are, or the Rockies in in Colorado or in Canada. So God formed those lands. And then it says that he holds the depths of the sea. I drove by the lake this morning on my way to come to church. Did you guys drive by? Who, who drove by the lake this morning? Wasn't it spectacular? I mean, I, I had my sunglasses on. I said to the kids, put my sunglasses on because it was so bright. And they put on, they're like, whoa, because the sun was just coming from the east across the water and it was blue and magnificent as opposed to the gray yesterday. It was absolutely beautiful. And I thought, God knows every single molecule that's out there. He knows every water molecule that's in that lake. And that's just one tiny little lake on one very big earth that's in a very small position in a very gigantic universe. And he knows every molecule. He knows every cloud. He's formed it with his breath. He knows every seagull that we hear when we walk out of the building that hang out on the top of the building over there, that's flying around. He knows every bird, and he takes care of them this morning. And the Bible says that he values us far more than the birds of the air. 
Now, this is what the psalmist is writing. And, and as he does that, he says, with that context, look back at verse 6. Come, let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the one who has made us. Not only because he values us more than the birds in the sky, but because of what the songwriter says in verse 7. He says there are two astounding, awesome truths. First of all, that he is our God. Church, don't overlook that fact this morning. Don't, don't take it for granted in any way. It's easy to look at the Old Testament and, and be so stunned by Israel's indifference and, and to be stunned that God continued to be patient with them and was willing to stay with them and, and continue to lead them when they were complaining and griping and bickering as we're going to see in a couple minutes. But the very fact that he was willing to be God in the first place for them is even more amazing. Because he knew who they were, and he knew what they were going to do, and he knew that it would take them 400 years to even cry out to him for help, and he knew how they'd be in the wilderness, and he knew that they would disperse someday into captivity because they were so rebellious, and God had to do something with them to send a message and there was quiet till Jesus came, and he knew how even when Jesus came, they would reject him. He knew all that, and he was still willing to be their God. He knows that about us, that we are going to be ungrateful sometimes, that we're going to fail to trust, that we're going to, we're going to be hesitant and, and, and resistant, that we're going to slide back into sin, that he's going to lead and we're going to say, I don't know if I want to do that, or, or, or he's going to call us to serve and we're going to say, I'm too busy, or he's going to call us to witness and we're going to say, I'm shy. He's going to, he's going to recognize all those things about us, and he does, and it still says, I'm pleased to be your God. He doesn't need us. He's not dependent on us to praise him. He doesn't have to have our trust. He could just say, you guys were a lousy experiment. He doesn't need our obedience. He's God. He doesn't answer to anybody. He's not dependent on some frail little creatures to obey him to get his self-worth. He's God. And yet it says, he's our God. That possessive pronoun, oh, that's such a wonderful pronoun, isn't it? He is our God. And then look second, it says, we're the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now that probably reminds you of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Remember that great psalm where he's described as our shepherd. Now being a shepherd isn't easy. I get to play a shepherd tomorrow morning in VBS. I've got to be David as I teach the kids. So I'm trying to think, how am I going to talk about being a shepherd? What's that going to be like? And I was thinking about this this week. And, and the shepherd has a difficult job because sheep are stubborn and sheep are flaky and sheep are easily led astray. So God says, this is you. That's nice, isn't it? How many know that that's true this morning, that that describes us well? You're stubborn, you're flaky, and you're easily led astray. Thank you, yes, that is true. God knows us very well. Stubborn, resistant, slow to listen, slow to obey, 
inclined not to trust, quick to be distracted, susceptible to temptation, inconsistent. He says, you people are the sheep. You roads are a sheep. You're stubborn, you're hesitant, you're resistant, you're distracted, you wander off, you don't know where you're going, you don't listen to me, and yet I am your shepherd, and you're the sheep of my hand, you're the people of my pasture, and I'm willing to guide you and correct you and teach you and protect you and come to you when you cry to me, all for the intent of giving you peace and security and making you more like myself. Why do I do this? Because I love you and because I'm gracious to you. But notice, there's a warning attached to it. In fact, the last line of verse 7 really almost probably goes with verse 8. So look at the warning here. Today, if you would hear his voice, and that should be a given. Remember our study in Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Uh, A sheep has to be guided by the shepherd's voice. If he doesn't listen to the shepherd's voice, the shepherd gets his crook, and it has that that round part at the end, and what does he do? He grabs the sheep and he pulls it along. Because remember, the sheep are stubborn, right? So today, if you would hear his voice, it says the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. So we know the voice of the Lord. He says, today, if you hear his voice, here's the warning. I'm strongly cautioning you against the opposite of bowing down. Here's what we need to hear this morning. In bowing down, There is a humbling of self and there's a recognition of greatness. It's an action of complete deference to God. Now, all throughout history, all throughout ancient times, up until now, when you kneel before somebody, when you bow down before somebody, it shows subservience. It's a statement of submission. It's a statement of readiness to be ruled. Now, the psalmist used that. Look back at verse 7. And eight, the psalmist uses that to contrast the time when Israel most definitely did not submit. The account is in Exodus 17. Don't have to turn there. Look at it later. Israel's approaching Mount Sinai. Ten Commandments are Exodus 20. So have those, have those points in scripture where you know what's going on. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Exodus 17 is three chapters before. So we can infer in our mind, even if we don't know the exact history, that Israel's on their way to Sinai. At Sinai, the presence of the Lord's going to come down. At Sinai, Moses is going to go up. At Sinai, the people are going to get the law. They're going to hear the voice of God. At Sinai, they're going to rebel. So this is a pivotal moment in Israel's history. Chapter 17, they're walking to Sinai. But as they go there, just having been delivered from the Red Sea, they start to grumble because they don't have any water to drink. And they're far too short-sighted and far too faithless to call out to the Lord. This is not just a moment of weakness. Wow, I'm really thirsty. Lord, if we just had some water, oh, I can't do it anymore. We're in the desert and I'm so tired. I just, I just need, that's not what this is. This is not just a moment of physical and emotional weakness. This is a microcosmic picture of everything that's going to happen over the next 40 years and beyond. When the people don't just say, please, just some water. 
God says, look at it in verse 9. He says, this was the time you tested me. You weren't just thirsty. This wasn't just about water. This was about your faithlessness. This was about your rebellious spirit. This was about you not praying. This was about you not asking me for help because you don't trust me. It was the time when you tested me. And look at the phrase that comes next. Even though you had seen my work. God says, I just delivered you out of Egypt with ten plagues. I just delivered you across the Red Sea and Pharaoh's troops drowned. You watched it. We sang at the other side and you praised me. And three verses later, you're griping. You tested me. That's such a dangerous mindset that's so easy to fall into. Anytime we worry and we don't trust, anytime we treat God's word as optional, anytime we don't strive for holiness, anytime we get complacent, we forget exactly what the Lord's done for us in redeeming us out of eternal bondage to sin. That is the time when we're testing the Lord because each of those things is a little form of idolatry. When our heart and our mind get so engorged with pride and we subtly or not subtly worship and serve ourselves just like Israel did with false gods. At the end of his life, Joshua strongly warned them about their propensity. He said, don't associate with other nations or bow down to their gods. Don't swear by them, don't serve them, don't bow down to them. In fact, he says in Joshua 24, don't even mention their names. Just stay away from them because they'll corrupt your heart and cause you not bow down to the one true God who is your God. That's exactly what they did. And look in verse 10, how the Lord felt about it. He says, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said there are people who err in their heart and don't know my ways. God despised their attitude and their actions. But the word also carries, when you see that word loathe, it also carries a sense of grieving. God said, your sin grieved me. I watched it and I hated what you were doing and it caused me sadness. So the psalmist says, he's our God. Rather than resisting him as our forefathers did, Let's worship him and bow down and kneel before him. Now turn back to the book of Deuteronomy. It's easy for me to say, right? I talk for a living. The book of Deuteronomy, fifth book in the Bible, chapter 7. The the second down that we're going to look at this morning, the first one is the bow down. This down has a correlation to the first. Because of Psalm 95, because of the whole Old Testament, we see the necessity of the command, second of all this morning, tear down. Now this warning came before they went into the land, so we're going back in history a little bit, came before they went into the land, and if they had just obeyed and guarded their heart to this command, Joshua and the psalm writer never would have had to bring it back up. But not only did the Lord warned them about associating with false God. He gave them an abundantly clear strategy and method, that's for us this morning, for eliminating false gods from being an issue so there won't be any curiosity or any temptation to try it out. 
Now, as people, and we're people, right, this morning? As people, we have a spiritual mischievousness. I didn't finish the word, did I? A spiritual mischievousness. That's a hard word to say. We have this little curiosity, this little propensity to say, I'm going to test the limits. It's kind of the inner teenager in us. How many have teenagers this morning? Let me see your hands. Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? I remember my parents saying, you'll know when you're a parent, you'll know. And I was like, yeah, we have whatever. Now we know. And someday we'll say to our kids, wait till you have teenagers. The inner spiritual teenager in us, which is kind of, I think I'll test it out. I think I'll roll my eyes a little bit at what the Lord has to say. I think I'll try to push the limit, see how far I can go, see what I can get away with. Unfortunately, God sees all things. I don't see all things. I try. But God sees all things, and he sees how we test him in this way, where we kind of just say, I want to I live a little. I want to I push outside the boundaries of what God has set and what God tells me is right and will make me holy and will bring me pleasure and joy to him. So, so we test a little bit. Now, nobody embodied that more than Israel. And he knew it, and he knows it about us. So look at what he says here in verses 1 to 6. And I want you to notice as we read this, just how strong and how thorough God's instruction is here. When the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 7, 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you're entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Everybody say amen. The pastor got all seven right. Seven nations that are greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You will not make a covenant with them and you will show no favor to them. Furthermore, you will not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons nor shall you take your daughters for their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then, as a result, if that happens, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. Notice very strong, thorough, clear instruction in verse 5. You will tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their ashram and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. There's Psalm 95 out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, notice the context that the Lord reminds them of in verses 1 to 2. It says, when the Lord, your God, there's that phrase, brings you into the land to possess it. Now remember, he had covenanted it with Abraham. He had kept his promise through Isaac. He had prepared it for them. He had delivered them out of Egypt to go to it. He had protected them. He had led them. He had forgiven them. And he had brought them into it. And then he says, I'm going to clear the nations out before you. Seven nations, they're all greater than you, they're all stronger than you, but I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to deliver you from them, and I'm going to defeat them. Now stop right there, because there's a very important spiritual principle 
verse 2. The faithfulness and the provision of the Lord always precedes his calling to obey. The faithfulness and provision of the Lord always precedes his calling to obey. The Lord is gracious and he is abundantly fair in that way. He doesn't say, trust me without proving himself. He doesn't say, obey me without showing why. He doesn't say, you're just going to have to take my word for it without any evidence. Constantly, again and again and again and again and again, he proves his worth, his goodness, and his faithfulness as God, even though he doesn't have to. And then after he proves that, he says, now, trust me. Now, obey me. Israel, here's what I'm going to do. And Moses kind of says, what else could we do? God is going to clear out the land that he promised, and he's going to take us in. But God says, here's the warning. I know how you are, and I know what your propensity is, and I know what you're inclined to do. So I'm going to take it much farther than just don't have any friendship with them. Don't, don't associate with them. Just, just kind of guard yourself a little bit. Look at what he says in verse 5, and just how serious and thoroughly we need to deal with anything that takes priority over the Lord and turns our heart away from him. He says, tear down their altars, smash the pillars, burn down the ashram, and, excuse me, hew down the ashram, and burn the graven images with fire. So let's be abundantly clear this morning. This is a call for a complete obliteration of sin in our lives. This is a call to aggressively annihilate anything that has become a God to us. The words, the verbs that he uses here are very, very descriptive. Tear down the altars, smash the pillars, hew down or cut in half the ashram, the ashram were monuments that kind of promoted sexual immorality, and burn the idols with fire. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't see a lot of equivocation in that verse. Do you? There's not a lot of latitude, or I don't know if God really means what he says because he kind of uses some real fuzzy passive verbs. So I think there's room for interpretation. Maybe God isn't really serious about us obliterating sin from our lives. I, 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 think, I think, Paul, that, that, that there may be some room there. No, there's zero room. There is no tolerance for sin in the life of the believer. He says, tear them down, smash them down, stomp on them, cut them in half, and burn them with fire. Completely eliminate anything that is a replacement for the Lord. I love the account in 2 Kings chapter 10 because it shows us how to do it and the attitude behind it. When Jehu, you can look at this passage later, it's, it's a great passage. When Jehu became king after Ahab, everybody knows who Ahab, right? right? He was the worst, most wicked king of Israel. He was the one who wanted to put Elijah to death. And even worse than him was his lovely wife Jezebel. So the next king after God takes Ahab out of power was Jehu. And Jehu's first statement to the people was, I'm going to worship Baal 
far more than Ahab ever did. He's going to look like a pansy compared to how I worship Baal. This is going to be spectacular. And he calls everybody together for a big festival to worship Baal. Now, what Jehu was doing was tricking the people because he wanted to call out the Baal worshipers. So he calls a festival and all the Baal worshipers come and they're all ready to worship. And when the people show up, he says, kill all those Baal worshipers and destroy the idols. And you know what he did with the idols? This is in scripture. This is not me making this up. It says that he turned the idols into a latrine. He made a bathroom out of them. And the Bible says in that text, 2 Kings chapter 10, that Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. Now you get really excited when you read the text because you say, oh, he's not like all the other kings. So many of the kings would tear down some of the idols and then they'd leave some and God would be upset with them. So it seems like Jehu does great. But sadly, in the text, a couple verses later, it says, but Jehu left a couple golden calves out and he wasn't careful to walk with the Lord. See, he eliminated some but he didn't destroy all. God calls us to live. Listen now, this is so important today. God calls us to live by the principle of total eradication. He calls us to live by the principle of total eradication. Look back at verse 2 for a second before we move to the final thought. The Lord delivers us. He gives us victory. And then we are supposed to destroy the influence of what he's defeated. In fact, we have a significant responsibility to tear down what might draw us away from him. Why? Because verse 4 says, if you leave them up, they're going to turn your heart. If you allow them to persist, they're going to change you. But verse 6, you're a holy people. You're chosen by the Lord to be his possession. It's a reminder of the first principle that we studied this morning because these work in succession. Bow down and worship the Lord because he's our God and we're the sheep of his hand and the people of his pasture. And because of that, then, we're supposed to tear down anything that takes our hearts away from him. And then look at one more passage. Go to Ephesians 4. Because the progression of thought continues in Ephesians 4. First of all, what are we called to do? We're called to bow down. Come on, you can do better than that. I know you're awake. First of all, we're called to do what? Bow down. Second of all, we're called to do what? Tear down. Third, we're called to cast down. Cast down. This actually has a direct correlation to last week's study. Because in Romans 13, 12, Paul says, The night is gone and the day is near. So we are called to wake up, first principle last week, wake up and cast down all our old habits from our past life and any connection that we have to the spiritual darkness that used to infect us. Now, this is not a passive action. This is not a soft approach. We have to be intentional and aggressive and diligent about getting rid of anything in our lives that is associated with our past life that is marked by death. And then the Bible says, we're going to read it in a minute, to put on what is living. Now the Lord has removed our sins. He's taken away the old. He's taken away the control 
that it had over us. He's taken away the guilt. He's taken away the penalty. All and only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But while he has exonerated us and freed us from our past life, it still exists. And the daily struggle of our walk is that it is trying to pull us back under its influence. So you and I have to decide every single day, what am I going to do with this old life that still lingers and wants me, but I don't report to anymore? I'm free of it. It has no power over me. It has no control over me. I can't look at it and say, well, I can't get out from under it. I just don't know what to do. It influences me too much. I don't have any control. No, those are all lies from the devil. We have no, excuse me, sin has no control over us. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Sin has no power over us. It says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sin has been broken. The chains are gone. We're free. We are now delivered from it. So sin doesn't hold you under bondage anymore. But that doesn't mean it's not still lying around, trying to trap you and pull you in and pull me in, trying to taunt us and lure us and invite us. Now you might say, well, why doesn't the Lord remove it? Why doesn't he take away that influence? Well, he already says, I've eliminated its power. It doesn't control you. I've freed you. I've renewed your mind. I've given you my spirit. I've given you my word. I've given you the body. I've given you every single reason that you would ever have not to want to take part in it. You know where you used to be with that before. You know where it dragged you. And you know how great it is to trust in me. So the Lord's not going to coddle us and treat us like little babies that don't know how to dress ourselves. He says, I've changed you. I've freed you. I've renewed you, and now I'm telling you, that doesn't control you anymore. Now you need to grow up into maturity, and you have all the power and authority and ability and strength to live completely free of it. You are no longer under it. It doesn't hold you captive. So if it comes and tempts you, or if it's clinging on to you like a bad something or other, I don't know, it's just clinging and won't let go, Here's what you need to do. You need to cast it off. You need to take it off and throw it away and get rid of it and stay away from it. Because it doesn't control you anymore. And if it comes tempting you, you say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not not having anything to do with that. Because you don't control me anymore. You don't own me. That's what Paul says here. Look at Ephesians 4, great passage. So much here, we're just going to touch on it and pray. In reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Every time that phrase, lay aside, is used in the Bible, because it's the same words is casting off or casting down. Every time 
the word lay aside is used in the Bible. It's in a grammatical voice. Oh boy, I'm about to bore you. It's in a grammatical voice called middle voice. Now that's something that would only interest an English major, right? Middle voice. But it's interesting for our understanding of this concept because middle voice is not active and middle voice is not passive. It is personal. It doesn't indicate a sterile action. It indicates something that has a special interest to the person. In other words, the action is being done for our self-interest and for our benefit. Now look back at what he's saying. He's saying for your self-interest and for your benefit in relation to your former life, which doesn't control you anymore, middle voice, lay aside the old self. In other words, you used to live a certain way. It was sinful and corrupt and opposed to the Lord. He says, get rid of that. Be renewed in your mind, because it always starts with the mind, and put on the new self, which is created in righteousness and holiness in the likeness of God. To do this, middle voice, has a personal benefit. Not only keeping your heart pure, not only keeping your mind free of the corrupting influence of sin that doesn't hold you anymore, but now to please the Lord and to draw closer to the Lord. Verse 20 says, it will make us more like Christ. Not futile, not confused, not darkened like verses 17 and 18 say. No, no longer like, what in the world is going on and how do I find clarity? What is my life all about? It's not like that anymore. When you put off sin that God's delivered you from, it has a personal benefit. Verse 27 says, it mitigates against the devil's attempt to dissuade and to damage you. And verse 30 says, it prevents you from grieving the Holy Spirit. Everything about casting down sin, everything about getting rid of its influence in your life is to our advantage. So here's the question. What do you and I need to put off and eradicate from our lives? He is willing and ready to be our God. He will guide us with his hand like a shepherd leads the sheep. But he says there's some responsibility in your part. There are some idols that need to be torn down, not just shoved aside, not, well, I'll put it over here for a while, put it up on the shelf, and I'll see maybe later. I don't know. I just, I just want to keep my options open. He's saying, no, don't, don't, don't just put them aside. Don't just put them away for a while. I want you to stomp on them. I want you to crush them, and I want you to burn them because they have controlled you for too long. Now, I've had people say to me over the years, they don't control me, and yet they're not willing to get rid of them, and they're not willing to put them down forever. And if you're not willing to get rid of them, then it still has mastery over you, not the other way around. Tear down, cast down, crush, stomp on, obliterate, eliminate, burn up what no longer should control you. And as you do that, as you put aside the things of the heart and mind and mouth, like Colossians says, anger and malice and wrath and slander and abusive speech, James says, putting off filthiness and everything that remains of wickedness. He says, in humility, implant the word in your heart. And Hebrews says, lay aside every encumbrance that so easily entangles you and run the race. As we do that, 
we will be ready and alert because the night is done and the day is here. Guys, look at the news. The night is done. The day is here. Jesus is on the way. It is time for us to wake up and prepare and get ready and to be vessels that are holy and pleasing to him because we have done this work. And God will help us. He already has. He's already delivered us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for what you've done in our lives. Lord, you know our frailty. You know it's difficult for us sometimes to do the work that we need to do. But Lord, you have called us very clearly to bow down and worship you because you are so great and so wonderful. And you have removed sin from us forever. Lord, you call us to tear down the idols and the things that have influenced us for so long, the things that we allow, like the kings of old, who would tear down some but not tear down others. And Lord, it's the ones that remain that are causing us to stumble and causing us not to walk in holiness. Lord, I pray this morning that you'd give clarity to every single person in this room of what we need to tear down and stomp on and get rid of once and for all from our lives because, Lord, it's dragging us away from you. Lord, as we do that, you will do a fresh work in our lives. You will bring holiness and confidence into our lives because we'll be walking by your Spirit. Lord, I pray for encouragement this morning. I pray for conviction in every one of our hearts that we would not walk out of this room and live the same way, but that we would be changed. And Lord, that we would serve you so faithfully. We thank you and praise you for what you have done already and what you're going to do. Lord, you're a gracious and wonderful God. You're our God. You hold us in your hand. It is miraculous this morning, Lord, that you love us on that level, and yet you do. So we praise you and exalt you, and we pray that we would walk worthy of you. We pray this in Jesus' name.